Unusual title for a Christmas series of messages, Wild Goose Christmas. I got the title from Batterson's book, Wild Goose Chase, that sat on my shelf a long time before I read it, and when I read it, I knew it was for this Christmas season. The explanation for him using that term is that the Celtic word for the Holy Spirit is gloss, which is literally the wild goose the wild goose. And he makes the point in his opening chapter that following the Holy Spirit is wild, risky, and sometimes rocky ride. But in our attempt to tame, or as he used the term, clip the wings of the goose, in our attempt to make the Holy Spirit safer for our journey, we find safety, but we miss the unpredictability of following the Lord, which keeps us on the edge of His purpose. And, and what we begin to do is value safety more than purpose. We value our personal safety more than the purpose of God in our life. So in this Christmas series... I'm talking about those of us whose intellectual analysis is in danger of, of paralyzing our spiritual progress. One of the things that I'm not sure about is whether or not many of us are developing patterns of life during the present epidemic time which will actually become reflexive in our life after it's over. I heard someone on the radio recently, several weeks ago, said, I think handshaking is out. I don't think we will continue shaking hands in the future. That's what I'm talking about. That, that kind of shift. And you know what? We all carry a, a, a few germs and a little bacteria with us. I worked with a doctor in, in Illinois, and he said, one time he said to me, he said, you know, germs are not as powerful as people think they are. <laughs> he said, your stomach acids can take care of a lot of bacteria. Um, Andrew, one time in our small group, we were talking about caring for our little ones and our children. He said, sometimes I think people just need to pour the cereal on the floor and let the kids eat it off the floor. Be good for their system, you know? <laughs> But I think there are some patterns beginning to develop. And it's not just patterns of behavior. It's patterns that are attitudinal in our life that, that prompt us in the choices we make and how we relate to other people and what we will do socially and whether or not we will continue laying hands on people and whether or not we're going to embrace and is handshaking gone. Those kinds of things, it concerns me that we are developing a reflex behavior. And so today, I'm, I'm focusing today's message on a, on a guy who was a bit player in the Christmas story. In fact, he's only mentioned in the, in the book of Luke, and it's the innkeeper. We know nothing about this guy except that he made a bad decision. Um, it could have been any one of us, right? Anybody here made a bad decision? Of course we have. We, we sort of imagine him, though, in every Christmas play I've ever seen, which includes the innkeeper, 
He's kind of a Scrooge-type character, kind of a Grinch-type character, maybe a a mercenary-type guy that uh, just quickly saw the poverty of this young couple and had no compassion. But anyway, we play his part. It turns out bad for him. Um, He missed an opportunity which was more valuable in hindsight, more valuable than all the paying guests he could have ever had. He missed it. And as I said, it's only mentioned in Luke chapter 2 and verse 7. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So we even presume there was an innkeeper that said, nope, no room for you. And it's a, it's a correct assumption. Absolutely correct. The verse couldn't be simpler, could it? It couldn't be more straightforward. And the micro, the, the sort of the, the, the narrow view, the micro view is just a man making a quick decision. Uh, no, we don't have any room. Sorry. Almost like you look at your cell phone and it's a number you don't recognize and it doesn't have a name that comes up with it. You go, nope, sorry. You put it back in your pocket. Um, I did that to my chagrin this past week. I should have taken the call. It was a fairly important call and um, I didn't. I just put it away. But the, but the big view, the macro view, gets a little more complex when we really begin to think about it. And that's what I began to think about. We can know a few things just by the circumstance. It's a little more than just deduction. We can be fairly sure of some things. One is we know the innkeeper was in a hurry. Now, how do I deduce that? Because travelers were coming to this little town of Bethlehem from all over the place. Everyone who'd been born there, that this was their home, they were coming in and everybody needed a place to stay. And boarding place, places where you could stay would have been limited in that time. It just, everybody didn't have four bedroom houses, you know? So it would have been limited. So we know that he was in a hurry. So the decision was made quickly, spur of the moment. We can be quite sure that he made a fairly quick assessment of this couple and he saw their poverty. That would have been very easy to see. would have just quickly looked at a few things and said, this is a, this is a couple that, is, that doesn't have a lot of money. Now, he's an innkeeper. He's not the Salvation Army. He's an innkeeper. He's got a little business that he's trying to make a living in. He makes a quick decision. He looks at them and he thinks in his mind, I think some better prospects are going to show up more than these guys. We also know that Mary was nine months pregnant. We've all seen women nine months pregnant. It's very obvious, isn't it? I mean, they walk different. They carry themselves different. They do different things, you know? Women who are nine months pregnant, it's a very very obvious thing. So he knew they were desperate. He had to know they were desperate after such a journey. But he hardened his heart. And he sent them out into a small cave with the animals to have their baby where they had 
probably park their donkey to have their baby. Now, some people would say, well, at least he was kind of kind to them. I don't know if any of you have ever been in a barn very much. I've been a lot of times in a barn. In fact, I've spent a lot of time milking cows in a barn and being in a barn for all kinds of things. And I mean, it's a barn. It's a place where animals are stalled. This was harsh treatment, especially in a culture, which this was in the Middle East, where taking in strangers was a common practice. Hospitality was, was just thought to be ordinary, much more ordinary than it is for us. And yet still, they couldn't even find a piece of floor to put down a little rug or something for this, for this little couple. So, that was the decision. We can be sure of some things and why he made the decision that he did. But here's what followed that decision. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now listen to this. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. Let me pause there. Where did they make it widely known? The area that was right around them. The place that was right around them. They didn't run off to some other town and tell people. They told people that were nearby. And all those who heard it, people around them, people in the city, marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned. So they went out, told everybody all around in the city, all around Bethlehem. Everybody was traveling there, all different places. It's like Paul Revere. On, on, on steroids, going out knocking and saying, look, look what's happened. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they'd heard and seen as it was told them. Exactly what the angels said. So suddenly, this stable is the focus of the town. And shepherds have told everyone, and the people marveled. So, what do you think's going on with the innkeeper? Hmm, I thought about that guy. What do you think's going on with the innkeeper? Do you think the innkeeper is among those who are marveling at what's happened? Or do you think the innkeeper is alone with an awareness that maybe? He pushed aside 
the greatest opportunity of his life. I'm going to go down that road a little bit because I think all of us identify with missed opportunities. Decisions that were made quick. Bad decisions. Failure to do the right thing in a pinch situation. At such times, we all discover places in our heart that are um, embarrassing, uh, places that are frustrating to us, places that are unsettling because we can't believe those things are within us. We can't, we can't believe that's in us. And we're embarrassed about it, and we're frustrated, and sometimes we even uh, despise ourselves. Here's something we all have to get a grip on. Guilt, guilt can be holy and healthy. When we sin, guilt can drive us to repentance. It can drive us to restoration. Yes. But there's another thing that we call false guilt. False guilt never leads to restoration. False guilt is on an endless loop in your brain, in your thinking. It keeps you in this repeated loop of reliving the guilt and despising yourself. And the devil loves to sprinkle a little fake glitter on that and use it to keep you in condemnation. I think we've all felt that at times. I don't know if the innkeeper joined everyone and stood amazed in the stable or if he hid his face in shame as a man who simply missed what God was doing. I know shame has kept me from enjoying moments that pass all too quickly and then they're gone. And shame kept me from enjoying that moment that went a window that passed. The time when your child is two years old, when your child is starting to school, when your child is in a sports event, when your wife is hurting, your husband is is grieved because of his lack of performance, because of his lack of ability to measure up to his own standard of behavior. And if we don't forgive ourselves, we get this, we, we, we get ourselves into this loop of what um, what what Pavlov, you remember the story of Pavlov with his dogs? Um, he um, he was just just curious about discovering um, if he could ring a bell and cause his dogs to salivate if he rang the bell just before he fed them. So he would ring the bell and then he'd feed the dogs. And he'd ring the bell and feed the dogs. Then he found that just ringing the bell made the dogs salivate. And that was called conditioned reflex. Conditioned reflex. And it just it, it's a simple thing. We understand it very well. It's the same thing that causes you when you see 
uh, when you think about it, even a certain meal or certain foods to salivate in the same way the, the dogs did. The problem with conditioned reflex is that if it happens in the area of your failure, missed opportunities, the things you've done that are so regrettable and embarrassing to you, you begin in life to second-guess yourself constantly. So it keeps you from moving in the direction of God's will because you're always second-guessing yourself. You think, mm, no, I, I'm thinking that, but that can't be right. You, you always second-guess yourself, and in doing so, we miss the opportunities of the wild goose chase because we go back into the safety net. We go back into safety. No, I, I'll just not do anything. I'll not say anything. I'll not deal with the situation because, hear this deeply, we fear ourselves. We fear ourselves. We fear what is within us. Ross Perot, when he was running for president, I know only some of us remember that, funny little guy. I always thought he was funny. I, I kind of like the guy, actually. Ross Perot referred to our national debt, and, and I wish I could fake his, his accent. I'm not good at it. Wally's so good at this. Uh, he referred to it as the little old lady hidden in the basement of our life. He said, that little old lady hidden in the basement down there, she never want anybody to see her. That's what the national debt is. You know, something like that. I'm not very good at that, but that's actually not too bad for me, you know. I've seen pastors. I've seen pastors uh, do that very thing. I've seen pastors who have reacted very ungraciously, very sinfully, actually. Um, maybe they reacted to rejection. It happens. Maybe they reacted to a thoughtless behavior someone else or um, a church. And they felt so bad about it. And I, I've had conversations when pastors have said to me, I'm, I'm supposed to be a man of God and instead I acted like an insecure child. What is wrong with me? I didn't know that was in me to be that way. And if, if they can't forgive themselves, here's the road that leads you down to. If they can't let themselves off the hook, they become afraid to move assertively. They become afraid to move with confidence. They become afraid to deal with confrontation. So confrontation is just avoided. I'm telling you, nobody can be a leader without confrontation. You can, simply can't. That's why growing up in Christ includes speaking the truth in love. It doesn't dodge the truth. It speaks it in love. They become afraid of confrontation. They stop speaking into issues they should speak into. They stop doing the things they should do. They stop dealing with the issues in the church. That becomes their conditioned reflex in the loop of their life. Remember Peter? <laughs> oh, oh my. How his cowardice haunted him. Luke 22. 
Having arrested Jesus, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house, but Peter followed at a distance. And by the way, let me add this footnote. He was also not there on the cross. John was. Peter's not to be seen. Followed from a distance. Now, when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. A certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. But he denied him, saying, Woman, I don't know him. After a little while, another saw him and said, You're, You were also one of them. Peter said, Man, I'm not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he's a Galilean. Peter said, Damn it, I don't know that man. I don't know him. And a spear went into his heart. And immediately, while he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Lord turned and looked at Peter. You ever experienced that? Ever had the Lord look at you? Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord. I'd said to him before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. So Peter went out and he wept bitterly. I wonder if the innkeeper went out and wept barely. I thought about it. I wonder if he ever forgave himself for the choice he had made, the snap judgment he had made of that little couple. I wonder how often he went out and stopped and stared at the trough. And I'm going to tell you, unless you've been in a barn a lot like I have, that animal trough always looks nice and pretty and clean in Christmas plays. It's not nice and pretty and clean. I wonder how long he went there and looked at that animal trough where he had forced the baby Messiah to be born with animal dung around, donkey's hoofs moving restlessly trampling, walking around. That's just natural for wildlife. I wonder how often he thought of the little mama of the Messiah having a baby on a dirt floor. I wonder how often he stood there, looked at that, I wonder if Peter relived his guilt every time he heard a rooster crow. What a way to begin your day. See, in that, in that day, we're, we're not that accustomed to it. And actually, Judy and I are because we have roosters in our neighborhood out there. We're kind of on the edge of the country. So we hear roosters almost every morning and other animal sounds. But in today's world, most people don't hear a rooster crowing every morning, but Peter would have. Anybody who's lived in a developing nation, uh, they relate to that. You hear 
roosters crowing in the morning. Wonder what it felt like every day as Peter woke to the sound of a rooster crowing. And it was a daily reminder of his greatest failure. The Bible says that Satan goes around prowling like a roaring lion. But I'm going to tell you, I think he can also crow like a rooster if that's what it takes to keep you in condemnation. He'll crow like a rooster. He knows my point of accusation and he knows yours. He knows your point of accusation and he is called the accuser of God's people because he's good at it. He's real good at it. He knows how to keep our self-hatred flowing so we lose our confidence in holding on to God's purposes and we head for safe ground. Just do what's safe. Listen, family. The only solution to those painful experiences of life is to allow the grace of God to saturate and sanctify those regrettable memories. Back in the 70s and 80s, especially, there were several books written on healing of your memories. And uh, they were pretty much discounted by the mainstream of the church because they saw it as psychological and more like, you know, more like uh, just a, a therapist would do rather than what we should do as Christians. But I believe there is real value in healing of our memories. But it's in the grace of God. It's not in some just some simple psychological procedure. It is allowing the grace of God to saturate and sanctify those regrettable memories. Otherwise, if we don't allow that to happen, if you don't allow that to happen, you will miss the opportunities that you're going to come into. We say, God set up divine appointments. You'll miss them. You'll miss them because you'll be second-guessing yourself all along the way. You'll be doubting yourself. You'll be afraid of the old lady hidden in the basement. That thing that's deep within you. And the enemy will point that out to you. I want to give you this morning in closing up just some points of wisdom about dealing with guilt and failure in our life. Number one is this. Other people really can't fix this for you. Really, I, don't, I don't care how loving your wife, your husband is, your friends are, your, 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 your children are. Eventually, at some point, we all have to fight our own battles. You know? One of my heroes is sitting right here, Steve Helmick. Steve Helmick is one of my heroes. I'll tell you, being innocent and yet in prison for 16 years would simply break most men. But Steve saw his years of incarceration as a university of learning. I want to read a little excerpt from one of my favorite books of all time written by Ralph Parlett called University of Hard Knocks. I think it was written around the turn of the century, around either late 1800s or early 1900s. One time I put some turkey eggs under the mother hen, waited day by day for them to hatch. And surely enough, one day the eggs began to crack and the little turkeys began to stick their heads out of the shells. 
Some of the little turkeys came out of the shells all right, but some of them stuck in the shells. Shell out, little turkeys, shell out, I urge, for Thanksgiving is coming. Shell out, that's a good reason, isn't it, for a turkey to stay inside? <laughs> but they stuck in the shells. Little turkeys, I'll have to help you. I have to shell you by hand. So I picked the shells off. Little turkeys, you will never know how fortunate you are. Ordinary turkeys do not have these advantages. Ordinary turkeys do not get shelled by hand. Did I help them? I killed them or stunted them. Not one of the turkeys was right that I helped. They were runts. They had too many silk socks, too many advantages. Children, you must crack your own shells. You must overcome your own obstacles to develop your own powers. A rich boy can succeed, but he has a poorer chance than a poor boy. The cards are against him. He must succeed in spite of his advantages. I'm pleading for you to get a great arm, a great mind, a great character for the joy of having a larger life. I'm pleading with you to know the joy of overcoming and having the angels come and minister to you. Isn't that sweet? Love that book. Steve could have come out very bitter, very defensive, very judgmental, but I found him neither bitter nor defensive. Instead, I found Steve to be honest about himself. More simple. More pure. Because he didn't think too highly of himself to dodge himself. He shelled his own shell. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. Isn't that a profound statement? That describes the best outcome of both the innkeeper and Peter. Because every one of us fears what we have within us. And we have to see it, but not live in the fear and be controlled by the fear. Number two thing, piece of advice. By applying the grace of God to our failures, it balances us in our attitudes. Let me explain what I mean. We see it for what it is. That's important. We see the failure for what it is, and we apply God's grace there. If we dodge it, we don't deal with it. But we also know in dealing with it, but is this, but for the grace of God, there go I. So we learn to judge both ourselves and others without hatred. See what I'm saying? It, it, it starts to balance us in life when we handle it in the right way. So our painful failure balances us in our walk. And it frees us to do the things that the Lord is calling us to do. Because we understand ourselves. We don't despise ourselves. We don't hate ourselves. But at the same time, we know, but for the grace of God, there go I. And as C.S. Lewis said, 
we see the lack in our own selves more and more, and it keeps us on our toes. I used to say to my students at Christ for the Nations, every day I fear myself. I don't mean a controlling fear. I mean every day I'm concerned about what is in me that may trip me up that day. Number three, it's a sign of wisdom when we know we are capable of the most foolish oversights and blunders. It's a sign of wisdom when we know we're capable of those things. Since coming to uh, Duncanville 21 years ago, I've had many places of failure in my own attitude, my own heart. But as C.S. Lewis says, we need to know ourselves every day and see our badness. As Paul said, I'm chief of sinners. I'm chief of sinners. But my friend Steve has taught me that the greatest grace can only be found, get this deeply, in the most intimate place of my self-awareness. That's what happened in prison. In the depths of awareness of my own self is where the greatest grace comes to us and must be applied in our lives. We all have to rise from the ashes of our own humanity, just like the little turkeys. We all have to shell ourselves out, and we have to accept Jesus not just as our Lord and Savior, but as the author of our life. So, number four, regardless of the missed opportunities and failures of our past, the last sentence of our life has not been written. The proof of that is the criminal who was crucified next to Jesus on the cross. <laughs> One of the criminals spit insults at Jesus. He spat out insults at him. Both men were criminals. Both men had done wrong. But the other said this. One criminal said this to the one that spit out insults to Jesus. Do you not even fear God seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he turned to Jesus. And this is the simplest call. This is the simplest receiving of salvation that you will ever hear in the Bible or in person, ever in your life. He turned to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's it. Remember me. Jesus said, for sure, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And Jesus said to him, you're going to be there. Jesus turned the worst day of that man's life into the best day of his life. And he turned the worst day of his life, the most painful day of his life, into the first day of eternity with Jesus. Man, the final word had not been written yet. 
but it got written on the cross. When we give Jesus editorial control of our life, then we are freed to chase the wild goose. Then we are freed to do the things that God is calling us to do because we know the last chapter hasn't yet been written. Hallelujah. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that your grace covers every place in our life where we've disappointed ourselves. We've disappointed you. We've disappointed our family and our loved ones. Lord, you know it better than we know it. Your grace, Lord, is all we can cast ourselves upon, but we do that today. And Lord, may people walk from this sanctuary today healed, healed in places of their life that have become a conditioned reflex of failure, of disappointment. May we go out of this place healed in a place that we didn't even know was there and needed healing before. But you put your finger right on it and say right there, you need to be healed right there at that point of failure. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. We let that happen right now. We just allow your grace to cover us in those places. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Praise God. Thanks.